HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm super excited today to announce that I have the University of Iowa professor, Sylvia Secchi, a natural resource economist by training, and her work uh, typically combines methodologies from the social sciences, the natural sciences, and engineering. She has published on the environmental impacts of agricultural land use change in the Corn Belt, particularly water quality and carbon, and the interplay between agricultural conservation and energy policies in the region. She's also studied farmers' attitudes towards conservation. We'll talk about that sometime. Multifunctional floodplain management and targeted reconnection, invasive species management and mitigation, and adaptation to climate change in the agricultural sector. Uh, Sylvia Secchi is a core faculty member in the Campus-Wide Water Sustainability Initiative at the University of Iowa. Welcome to the show. I'm so I'm so glad to have you on because you know I feel like I'm developing a whole cohort of guests from that sort of Corn Belt region, and I I I, I see the Corn Belt as kind of the canary in the coal mine in terms of understanding what our agricultural policies are doing to our environment. So thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, so we were going to talk about um, basically the, the scam that is ethanol. And this is not my first time about talking about this, but I've never, you sent me some papers to read that were just so mind blowing. I, I literally had to scrape my jaw off the floor um, so let's start by talking about what is the renewable fuel standard. I think we all see that we're getting 10 to 15 percent ethanol in our gasoline at the pump, but we have long since ceased to marvel at that or even wonder why it is so. So can you describe for listeners, you know, let's review what is the renewable fuel standard? When did it start? Who thought this up? And what science at that time backed the policy? Sure. The renewable fuel standard is a, this is, a, we're actually under the second renewable fuel standard that was passed in 2007 under the Energy Independence and Security Act. And I want to remind everyone that 2007, we had a Republican president. Ethanol right. is a very bipartisan. And the idea at the time was that ethanol would fulfill three functions. It would reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. 
it would enhance national security because we would be producing this ethanol with um, feedstocks, with crops uh, from the United States and would help the agricultural sector. Now, the most important thing to remember is that when we wrote the law, when the law was passed, corn ethanol was supposed to be, at the time, a bridge fuel. So a bridge to a different kind of, of ethanol production that oh. was more environmentally friendly. Oh. And so we were supposed at this point in 2023, when actually the mandates have to be reconsidered by EPA, we were supposed to have 16 billion gallons of um, cellulosic ethanol on the market and 15 billion gallons of corn ethanol in the market. Unfortunately, we have less than a billion gallon of cellulosic ethanol in the market. And this, so this uh, promise of more environmentally friendly biofuels that the RFS essentially wanted us to produce never materialized. Mm. And what, what was the science at the time? Like who's, you know, when did they decide, okay, Congress passes the mandate. I understand that. But where did the where did the science emerge that this was going to be, um, you know, the, the the magic bullet that would reduce our dependence on fossil fuel? And of course, let me remind people at the time that at that time in 2007, um, we were very worried about energy independence. Right. We were in the midst of the Iraq war. Um, we were worried we weren't going to get the oil that we needed from other countries. Um, and so that was a big driver in in pushing this through Congress. Right. So who, who, but where was the science that said that this was going to be, um, you know, more environmentally friendly rather than less environmentally friendly? And we'll talk about why it's less in a minute. Yes. So um, first of all, I, I, um, I think your observation that 2007 is a different time than 2023 in terms of energy independence is um, critical here, right? Because that was before fracking really took off. And the U.S. is pretty much energy independent, but not because of biofuels, um, rather because of the domestic production of oil and natural gas uh, because of uh, fracking. So that's that's a really important point of context because we don't really need biofuels anymore to be energy independent given this big change. But at the time, there was... um, quite a bit of research that essentially indicated two things. One, that corn ethanol had some um, potential with a lot of limitations uh, to be a partial um, substitute for gasoline, but that this uh, cellulosic ethanol that would be produced from, essentially you can produce uh, cellulosic ethanol from uh, wood residues, from fast-growing trees, from grasses, from crop residues. And so that was really the long-term goal of the renewable fuel standard to uh, ramp up, to stand up this new technology. And again, it's important for your listeners to understand that those 15 billion gallons of corn ethanol was actually a ceiling not a floor. And so we were not supposed to produce more than 15 billion gallons of corn ethanol because Mm. it had all these potential problems. And the science at the time already indicated that. It was supposed to be a transitory kind of uh, crop, right? And uh, and then we were going to move on to better things. Wow. Amazing. So let's let's just remind listeners, I remember, and I'm I'm a little, I should have looked this up, but as I recall, 
the cost of, um, you know, the energy cost required to convert corn into ethanol exceeds the cost of a gallon of gas. Is that correct? So, um, the the issue here is uh, twofold. One is that corn uses a lot of fossil fuel energy. Uh, we fertilize corn a lot to produce the yields that we're used to. And that fertilizer, especially if you think about nitrogen, nitrogen is really a natural gas intensive product. Mm. We also have to dry that corn. So even before we get to the transformation part, the on-farm processes to produce corn uh, cause a lot of greenhouse gas emissions and require a lot of energy. The second part is, as you were um, discussing, this idea of the transformation. And at the beginning, particularly of the the renewable fuel standard, um, we were not making good use of the uh, byproducts of corn ethanol. And so that's why at that time, people were saying, essentially, we use more energy than we take out of corn ethanol. Mm -hmm. Now we make a better use of those byproducts, the dried um, distiller grains, we feed them to animals. But there is still the problem that one, the corn production process is very energy intensive. And two, that it requires land that is very good at sequestering carbon. So in terms of energy, we're doing better, but in terms of carbon and greenhouse gas emissions, not necessarily so. Right, right. And so that leads me to um, one of the pieces that you sent me um, was a Reuters report by the wonderful Leah Douglas, who was an invaluable member of my reporting team during the pandemic, because she remember she did that incredible series on uh, the workers, meatpacking workers uh, who were getting sick and dying from COVID without any protections from their thing. Anyway, so she wrote this story that you sent to me um, and she, it reports on the EPA Science Advisory Board, which has found that there is, quote, a reasonable chance that there are minimal or no climate benefits for substituting corn ethanol for gasoline or diesel. So what were the specifics in terms of that life cycle GHD? Do you have, like, are you able to, I, I understand that the, you know, the fertilizer, the emissions from your tractor and plowing and planting and harvesting, the drying, like, can we get more granular about, you know, what those GHG emissions actually look like? Yes. So the uh, first of all, for context, that science advisory board um, uh, uh, finding that I sent to you, it's because this year in 2023, EPA essentially is mandated by the renewable fuel standard to reconsider right. whether corn ethanol is a good idea. And again, I, it's really important for context to remember that when we wrote, wrote that law, we were expecting corn ethanol to be a bridge fuel to the cellulosic future that never materialized. So it's very important that we think, okay, what is the point of continuing to use this marginal um, product, this marginal technology that, as the EPA Science Advisory Board says, is questionable in terms of its environmental benefits when it didn't really help us move to a more environmentally friendly um, technology such as cellulosic. So we 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 have to keep the eye on the prize here, which is right. you know, what the law intended us to be. Yeah, right. So in terms of the greenhouse gas emissions, there are 
two types of ways in which we have increased our production of corn uh, in the United States. One is, particularly in places like Iowa and southern Minnesota, we have switched from a corn soybean rotation to a continuous corn rotation. Mm. What does that mean? That's really boring. People say, oh, so who cares? Well, you should care because <laughs> you should care because soybean is a legume and so you don't fertilize it. And that means that by switching uh, from corn soybean to corn corn, you are essentially more than doubling the amount of nitrogen fertilizer you're putting in and therefore the greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with that. Um, so in, the other thing that happens is when you plant corn after corn after, after corn, you don't do conservation tillage or no-till because you have more residue and that creates problems with the growing of the corn. So we're also tilling the soil. And that Ooh. means one, loss of uh, carbon, and two, more greenhouse gas emissions from the energy of that machinery operation. Right. So on that intensive margin where we were already growing crops, it has not been good. And by the way, we haven't even talked about water. But yeah, no, we're going to get to that though, <laughs> that, because there is that that little side problem there as well. So we have this issue on the intensive margin where we were already growing the crop, but also in places like, for example, South Dakota, uh, in places like Nebraska, they really went in on corn ethanol. They built quite a few ethanol plants and they converted land that was not cropped, land that was either in conservation uses or land that was pasture into um, corn, corn acres. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine that resulted in uh, greenhouse gas emissions when they plowed those grasses, when they mm -hmm. plowed those, those um, pastures. And so we have two types of effects in terms of um, this, this increased production of corn. And the second one is actually the one that's a big deal because those soils were good at sequestering carbon. They're not necessarily very good at producing corn. And so we have a lot of greenhouse gas emissions from that land use change, that conversion. Wow. You know, to go to the to the question of soils for a second, because I know, you know, a lot of people in the agricultural industry are talking about how the loss of topsoil that is occurring at a tremendous rate due to, you know, over tillage or, or just tilling. That's why so many farms are trying to and why the USDA is trying to encourage farmers to do more cover crops and no-till farming. And so we're not only are we, you know, converting pasture and grassland into uh, cornfields, but we're also tilling soil, which will then blow away or wash away when the corn crop has been harvested. Isn't that right? And then to talk about the water impact on that, why don't you describe what that's doing to the water, uh, you know, uh, byways in those areas? Because I'm sure it's also very, I know for a fact, it's a very profound impact. Yes. And, you know, I, I again, in terms of policy, I, I tell people in, the, in America, we pay farmers to pollute and then we pay them to fix the pollution we have paid to generate. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. You're exactly right. Yeah, it's crazy. Yes, it's not. So it's not a very good system, particularly here in the Corn Belt, um, where we have uh, the, you know, the, the majority of the federal subsidies and 
if you think about it, the corn man, the corn ethanol mandate is in some sense an indirect subsidy because we have the direct subsidies of the crop insurance, but also we have the mandate, so we have to produce all this corn. Um, and so what happens to our waters? Well, one of the things that we have happening, for example, here in Iowa, is we farm and we grow corn on the two-year floodplain. And you can imagine when that floodplain floods on average every other year, mm -hmm. uh, you may lose not just your corn crop, but a lot of the fertilizer you have put in. And so that gets flushed into the water uh, directly. But also, as we were saying, because we, when we plant corn after corn after corn, we tend to do more um, uh, tillage, essentially more, more um, uh, we turn the soil more, we right. leave it more exposed. Then what happens is that sediment, if you know, the land has a bit of a slope and it rains and we have more storms because of climate change, that soil gets washed away. And often attached to the sediment, there is phosphorus, so there's nutrients. Um, and so that's why in places like Iowa, our water quality is, is really terrible. With yeah. you know, we have problems in terms of um, algae, we have problems in terms of treating the water for drinking. Um, mm -hmm. We have problems in terms of lost fertility uh, for the fields uh, that, uh, you know, have been so uh, harshly treated with all these uh, distillage operations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, one of the things that, uh, that also struck me uh, when I was reading through that material was that um, by replacing other crops with corn, as you said, like in Nebraska, they went haul in hard for corn, but I mean, crops like wheat and soy, which are normally planted, if not in rotation, at least alongside of, and uh, th this has all had an impact on consumer prices. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how the prices for those basic commodity crops have risen kind of dramatically and, and the knock-on effect for those of us who buy at the grocery store? Yes. So the, uh, you know, the main use for uh, corn before the renewable fuel standard was for livestock feed, right? right. Uh, and so then we have other uses like um, high fructose corn syrup, you know, it goes into your corn flakes, uh, uh, all, all other uses. But the main one was feed. And so the big effect in terms of uh, changes in prices was on uh, meat prices. Yeah. Now, uh, in the United States, you could say, well, maybe it's okay if people eat less meat because it's become more expensive. But certainly we have seen at the international level, in places in particular like Central America or Sub-Saharan Africa, where people's main staple food is maize, it's corn, it's grits, it's polenta, however you want to call it, yeah. that increase in corn prices translated into massive increases in food prices for people whose income was very low and who had trouble, um, you know, paying more for their food. So mm. the effect in the United States was largely through impacts on meat prices, because that's what really was affected. But globally, the effect was larger and more directly related to maize that people use as a staple food. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back. We have to take a sponsor drop, um, but stay tuned because we have a lot more to talk about, um, certainly about sort of the policy insanity of this particular bugaboo in our political system. So stay tuned for that. 
Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. So, Sylvia, one of the other things um, that I also wanted to talk about for a second is that because we've increased our corn production um, and we have now put more acres under cultivation, land under cultivation, I learned that's a term, um, rather than keeping it in conservation or keeping it pastured or just following it for a couple of years, what are those, what are the implications of that? for future generations? Like, where, where is this going to end in terms of uh, the fertility of our soils and the, you know, the ability to cultivate food in the future? Yes. So um, one of the things that, uh, this is actually my core area of research, conservation policy. Oh, no so kidding. one of the things we've seen is that, particularly in places like the Dakotas, um, which are really important, uh, you know, continental migratory flyways for birds, right? We have seen that land that was in conservation, particularly under the Conservation Reserve Program, which paid yep. farmers to take land out of production. Yeah. Well, that land is now cropped. And so this has impacted waterfowl bird populations. I was talking to... Um, a friend of mine who's originally from South Dakota, and he said that it was part of the culture over there to go hunting. And, you know, just people would just go to these places and hunt, you know, outside. And now because of the lack of open spaces for the birds, it's all bird farms. And so if you want to go hunting, you essentially have to buy your slot at a oh, bird come farm on. because it's no longer possible to do what was really part of, the culture down there, uh -huh. so or up there, so um, we are seeing these uh, changes in habitat uh, and uh, in in you know wildlife populations, which are really important in terms of thinking, you know, preserving uh, those for uh, future generations. But as you were saying, we are also seeing the soil erosion, the lack of productivity. And that has impacts for our food production going forward. So we're kind of losing on both fronts on the, in, in terms of the environment and habitat, but also in terms of future capacity to feed ourselves. That's the part that I find extremely scary, um, is this kind of uh, sort of devil-may-care squandering of resources, even though we know science is telling us loudly that these practices should not be continued and that we need to turn the ship in a different direction. And we are somehow uh, unable to affect uh, any meaningful change in the larger 
sort of food production um, category in this country. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know what it's going to take to make people because even like with the recent Biden announcement of climate smart agriculture, to me, that just looked like a giant giveaway to Cordiva and, you know, Pioneer. Dow oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. And it, and it's and it's not going to change. They're not going to change their practices in any meaningful way, unless I'm completely misunderstanding what I read about. What what did your what was your take on the announcement of this climate smart uh, initiative oh, by the absolutely. Biden? They're throwing a lot of money at it. Absolutely, it's it's uh, 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 you know I'm I'm going to tell you this. I actually sent a Freedom of Information Act request to USDA Good because all these big polluters, all these. Uh, oligopolists, they were essentially making bank on, on this uh, uh, billions of dollars of public money. Yeah. And so I wanted to know, what is the money actually going to be used for? And my request was completely rejected. I received zero documents out of 7,000. Oh, wow. Under the, yes. And they told me that it was because there were proprietary uh, commercial secrets involved. Which, you know, that tells you already that the fix is in and yeah. this is essentially another big handout to big ag. And as you were saying, this is not really going to change much in terms of our uh, production system. We're still going to uh, create, have incentives, incentivize the production of all these things that actually cause pollution rather than reduce it, because that's what agribusiness really wants. They want to sell feed. They want to send, sell fertilizer. They want to sell seeds. They don't want to sell conservation. They want to emit more, not less. Yeah, right. Well, that, that brings me to another document that you sent me, which was a um, paper by uh, a professor, Jason Hill, from the University of Minnesota, who reviewed the study that you sent me on corn ethanol and biofuels. And I'm going to read a quote from what he said which was, uh, this is part of a sentence, our current national biofuel policy is more closely aligned with the fossil fuel industry than it is with the current climate agenda. So among other things, he is, uh, well, I mean, that speaks for itself. But among other things, he is also referring to the recent scheme uh, to build a pipeline that will transport carbon dioxide from ethanol plants to oil fields to aid in the enhanced oil recovery. So can you comment a little bit on uh, this latest expansion of the corn industry? And by the way, before you start, I just want to mention that uh, in my show, episode 356 with Tom Philpot, if you're interested in learning more about this pipeline, which, by the way, is being run by Jesse Vilsack, Tom Vilsack, our secretary of agriculture's son, um, you know, you, you'll you'll find a, a quite illuminating episode there. But but, you know, this I don't know. I just want you to talk a little bit about this pipeline and what the implications of that are. Yes. By the way, I'm a big Tom Philpott fan. Really, yeah, me too. Really. I love I, Tom. I, yes. So, <laughs> so there actually were three pipelines being proposed, but the one that you were talking about, the Summit Pipeline, is the yes. only one remaining at this point. The other two uh, pipeline operators have withdrawn permits. Oh, and really? Summit is not saying that they're going to use the um, carbon, um, um, the, the, the CO2 sequestered uh, for enhanced oil recovery, but they could. And the reason why this is happening is because there's government money 
to yeah. uh, to essentially sequester carbon, whether it's permanently or for enhanced oil recovery. There's a bit of a difference in the in the subsidies, but there's subsidies for both. And the idea here is that they want uh, to put it bluntly, they want to put lipstick on a pig, where the pig <laughs> is yeah. corn ethanol, and they want to make it look more sustainable by showing that it has lower greenhouse gas emissions because the greenhouse gas emissions from the actual making the ethanol at the ethanol plant are being captured. That does not capture all the emissions happening at the farm level, right? No, and of course not. again, it is not clear that we are going to permanently sequester the carbon that's coming out of the smokestacks of the ethanol plants. Mm. You know, all of this, I mean, it's just, it's kind of mind blowing to me. I mean, you're deeply steeped in this, in both the science and the policy of this, but for a lay person like myself and most of my listeners, you know, having the government talk out of both sides of its mouth, essentially. Yes, we are all for climate smart agriculture. Yes, we are all for, you know, reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. And at the same time, we continue to, through policy measures, build out more and more of these same very destructive policies. I, I mean, wh what is the answer to this? Like, how do, how do we turn the ship of state? Is it just we have to get rid of all these old white men? Or, you know, what, what, what's, the, what's the answer? <laughs> I, okay, I that that's a very very good idea. Actually, I'm all in favor of that. They should all like disappear from the policy arena immediately. For, like, Fifty years, yes, yes, and we'll fix things. Yes, uh, I would say you know, uh, I think that the the answer to this actually starts with what we're doing right now. It starts with informing the public because I really think that in the United States the um, kind of like big ag industry has uh, flooded the zone, if you will. They have mm -hmm. essentially dominated the narrative and told us that, you know, we're feeding the world, that farmers oh, yeah. are stewards of the land. And actually, when you start digging in, that's not the case, right? And of so I think not. it's very, very important to have critical voices, um, such as yours, such, such as Tom's, out there and say, hey, actually, when you look at what is actually happening versus what they're telling you is happening, there is a huge discrepancy. And you need to be informed as a voter, as a consumer, as, yeah. you know, a, 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 I really think that if people um, are, are have better information, they will clamor for different policies because these policies really benefit, you were talking about men, you know, they really benefit a very, very small minority of people. In America uh, nowadays, very, very few people are farmers uh, and they receive a lot of subsidies. And, and we really need to um, move the policy away from benefiting this small minority to benefiting, you know, society at large. And so not things that uh, continue, continue business as usual, but are transformative in terms of the environmental impacts of our agricultural system. Yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is because I also know um, that uh, universities such as even your own um, are often heavily subsidized by these very same industries 
And those uh, policies are often continued to be promulgated to the students that run through those, um, you know, land grant programs. And that's that's also a problem. Um, well, yeah, I, I would say the University of Iowa is not the land grant in Iowa. It's the no, flagship. It's the land grant is Iowa State, of which I am a graduate. So mm-hmm. I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. I graduated from Iowa State and I worked there for eight years. And it certainly is very difficult to have uh, to present a critical perspective uh, right. when you work there. Uh, but I think that it is uh uh, I mean, I, I actually complain about this a lot and vociferously. I think that, you know, you, the people who work at the land-grant universities in this country are paid by taxpayers, largely, yes. uh, or tuition dollars, right? And so they shouldn't work for the small minority of farmers. They should work for all of us. And particularly uh, people working in ag colleges are the ones that have done a terrible, terrible job at really doing work that, improve social welfare writ large, not just the welfare of farmers in right. agribusiness. And people should really understand that when we're talking about farmers on this scale, it's not like, you know, I live in a in a fairly rural state, for example, in Rhode Island, and there's quite a few small farms in my area. We're not talking about those people. We're talking about companies often owned by TIAA CREF or hedge funds who are farming thousands of acres and who have a responsibility to their shareholders and not a responsibility to the social contract. And I I think right there is a major problem, uh, which we could discuss at another time. But I want to get on to um, you. One of those papers mentioned, and you met, you referred to this other cellulosic of renewable fuels. What is that? Is that what's considered an advanced renewable fuel? So, and what, what would those be? And do we need them? So uh, the umbrella of advanced uh, renewable fuels includes cellulosic, it includes biodiesel, and sugarcane ethanol, which is you know the the ethanol that's largely produced in Brazil. Why? Why are they called advanced? They're called advanced because they have much lower energy demands, and therefore they're much better at reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Hmm. Now. Do we need them? That is a very, very good question. The thing is that, you know, electrification is happening, right? And so going forward, we're going to have less and less need for liquid, liquid fuels for transportation. But there are some areas that are going to be very difficult to electrify. And so think about long range, um, travel. Think about, you know, flying from, uh, Rome to uh, LA, for example. Okay? Yeah. So there you may want to have sustainable aviation fuels and these advanced biofuels are kind of like what people are looking into uh, for this smaller but still important area of, of um, uh, energy demand, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, w- I wanted to talk for a second about the pivot, you know, as we become more and more electrified for our vehicles. I uh, I forget who it was who mentioned that. Maybe it was Keith Schneider at a couple of shows ago. Um, but he was talking about the fact that, you know, the ethanol industry is pivoting towards the aviation industry as opposed to because they see the writing on the wall that eventually vehicles will become all electrified. And, and so it, it seems to me that this you know, that this, uh, 
will perpetuate itself. And I, I want to get into a thing right now uh, in our last few minutes here about how policy is developed. Uh, you know, when these guys say, well, we're going to like electrify vehicles, Congress says we're going to electrify vehicles. And then the corn ethanol lobby, the corn lobby essentially says, oh, but that's that's going to be bad for us. So, I, uh, you know, we're going to have to like find some other place to put all this ethanol because now we have all the plants mm-hmm. and we have the pipelines and we have all the corn. What are we going to do with that? And um, how do we separate uh, the policy from the people who are paying to get what they want? Because, I mean, let's be frank, these uh you know, these companies basically control many of our members of Congress. I don't know how we disentangle business from policymaking. What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, big fan of Keith, too. You have uh, you have really good people on your show. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I, I've been doing this a while, so I really have. Keith is my latest addition to my stable. And I'm telling I love the guy. He did a show with me a couple of weeks ago about um, toxic uh, you know, cancer highway in Minnesota. And he's coming on actually next week or the week after to talk about, um, uh, we're talking about methane digesters, actually. I'm quite excited. Oh, about dear. That. Yeah, yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. another, this is another, you know, red herring that's being tossed. I don't really quite understand the science behind that, but we'll, Keith will explain it to me, I hope. But to get back to this idea of policy, because I realize, you know, in, I've been doing the show a long time, Sylvia, like 14 years now. Things do not change without legislation forcing them, right? So in general, the legislation seems to favor large uh, corporate concerns. I don't, I, what, is, what are your thoughts about how we divorce that? Like, is it taking money out of politics? I mean, I see it as a big problem from Citizens United, but is, what are the other options that we have to force our legislators to actually listen to the population instead of listening to corporate interests? So this is, uh, again, a very good question. I um, This past summer, I was actually at the um, uh, Agricultural History Society annual meeting in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee, and we had a, a forum on the history of the farm bill and uh, the what they in the in the um, in the business is called the iron triangles. So this kind of like uh, uh, alliance, historical alliance between farmers, um, Congress people, and the industry that essentially has dominated um, the the farm bill throughout its history. And wow, what I think one of the things that um, uh, I I uh, was left pondering um, is the fact that we have actually seen one big change in the farm bill, and it is food stamps. Yeah, and the way the food stamps were essentially introduced and then made permanent, uh, and and become and then became a really important part of the bill is through civil society. the The, the bill was really that that part of the bill really. Um, went, uh, uh, you know, big mm-hmm. during the civil rights era. And so uh-huh. from, from my perspective, it's not from the inside that we will change things. It's not having, you know, people uh, within the, the kind of like community of, of whether it's the iron triangle or rectangle or whatever, hexagon, <laughs> right? The, the insiders, it's coming from the outside. It's coming from people concerned about climate change, People understanding that now farming, 
you know, when the farm bill started, right, in the 1930s, yeah. we were in the middle of the Great Depression. We had um, a lot more people involved in agriculture. Right. Well, now, and we had we the have Dust Bowl. A, yes. And so now what we have is we have very, very few people causing a lot of environmental problems. And so I think the pressure from the outside, particularly, I think people concerned about uh, climate change, people concerned about sustainable food production is where I see the change happening. And, and, and as I said, it wasn't pretty, the introduction of the food stamps um, into the farm bill. There was a lot of pushback. Uh, uh, that, like, I think there's going to be pushback uh, going forward, but it yeah. still happened. And we have drastically changed the farm bill because of that. So from my perspective, what has to happen and, and again, that's why I see programs such as this as, as kind of like an integral part of that process. We have to make people aware and we have to make people go out and say, hey, I'm not voting for you unless you really vote for a different farm bill. I am not voting for you unless you vote for a different kind of climate policy, because mm -hmm. these two things now are really interconnected. Yes, they certainly are. Well, I think on that note, we should probably call it a day. Um, but Sylvia, you'll be coming back. We'll have plenty more to talk about in the future. I, we tossed back and forth a couple of different topics and landed on ethanol, but I, I'd love to have you back for another show. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving uh, and we'll be in touch. Uh, thanks so much for my listeners and to my sponsors for supporting our station. We'll see you next week. Have a happy holiday. Thank you. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.